Scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, Palm Sunday is a good reminder that the Bible tells one story from beginning to end. The story that had begun in Genesis with the creation of all things and then the fall of man into sin and the promise that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent was on its way to its fulfillment. The story of redemption, of God's rescue of a rebellious people from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the perfect life and atoning death of God's own son, Jesus, was reaching its climactic moment. The sweeping narrative of the covenant of grace was coming into focus as Jesus made his way on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy through the crowd toward the cross that awaited him. But Palm Sunday is also a good reminder of the ways that we forget our place in his story. He is rescuing People, after all, a people whom he had called and is still calling to live for his glory, a people he is restoring to their former glory as whole and holy men and women, boys and girls renewed in his likeness, a people he is calling to point others to the salvation that is found through the paradox of his death on a cross. A people who now have their sights set on heaven, watching for the return of our resurrected Lord. That's our place in his story. But we often find ourselves living in rival stories. Now, what do I mean by living in rival stories? I mean that part of your life that you have elevated to the place of central importance in your life. I mean the subplot in your life that you've made the main plot so that the main point of everything is lost. I mean the thing that you've made the ultimate why of your existence. 
We all have stories in which we live, the story of our life at work, the story of our life at home with with a family or as a single person, with a spouse or with children, the story of our life at church, the story of our life when it comes to our, you know, our, our, our health. I mean, these are all parts of our story. But when we elevate these aspects of our story to that place of ultimate importance, when we make that the thing that we're living for, then we find that we fail to see Jesus in the same way they fail to see Jesus for who he really was. Whenever a subplot, whenever an earthbound story is elevated to a place of ultimate significance, we find ourselves living in a rival story, and we risk missing who Jesus really is. The people lining the streets were living in a rival story. The the clues are all over the text that I just read. The proof would be seen when their cry in a matter of days turned from Hosanna to crucify him. The Bible is a story, one true story from beginning to end, unfolding in history, and nearly everyone on Palm Sunday failed to see themselves in that story. And so they failed to see Jesus for who he really is. And so the question we need to answer this morning is, are we in any way in danger of doing the very same thing? To answer that question, there are three things that I want us to see from the text this morning. The first is the Savior we expect. The Savior we expect. Second, the Savior we need. And then third, the Savior who will return. So the Savior we expect, the Savior we need, and the Savior who will return. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do ask that you would speak to us um, by your Spirit, through this, your Word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the Savior we expect. The crowd had great expectations for the son of David. Let me trace the history real quick from King David to Palm Sunday. David became king in Israel around 1010 BC. He would reign for 40 years, and his reign would be marked in large part by the adultery and deceit and and murder that we're also familiar with concerning his affair with Bathsheba. He reigned for 40 years, and then his son Solomon would follow and would sit on the throne, but the corruption within Solomon's house would would only increase. The corruption within Israel would increase until 925 BC when the kingdom of Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes that pulled away, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, two tribes that remained there of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then those kingdoms, which would continue to spiral into corruption, First and Second Kings tells the story of the failures of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and specifically the kings of those kingdoms, to reign and rule as God would call them to do so. But then those two kingdoms would both fall. 
722 BC, the northern kingdom would fall to the Assyrian Empire. 586 BC, the southern kingdom would fall to the Babylonian Empire. And then 70 years after the southern kingdom fell, Cyrus of Persia would defeat the Babylonians and permit the exiles from Jerusalem to return to Jerusalem. And you read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But there was still no kingdom. They were, they were permitted to return, but there was no king on Israel's throne. The kingdom was not restored. In time, the Roman Empire would occupy the land, and, and over time, Jewish insurrectionists would rise up to try to drive out the Roman occupiers. But then they too would fall, would ultimately fail. So that by the time of Christ, there was still no king on Israel's throne. There was still no freedom for God's people in the land. So what did the crowd expect Jesus to do on that first Palm Sunday? They expected him to drive out the Romans. They expected him to reestablish the kingdom. They had that expectation because God had said in his covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, there would always be a king on David's throne. So they're thinking, maybe Jesus is that king who will come to restore the kingdom to Israel. He must be the king that has come to save us. Now, how do we know that? What are the clues that are in the text? We know from what they did and we know from what they said that this is what they were thinking, that this was the expectation that they had for Jesus. First of all, notice what they did In verse 8, verse 8 says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, the other gospel writers in their account of Palm Sunday tell us that those branches were palm branches. Now, that's very interesting. Why palm branches? This was the time of the Passover. There was no religious significance to palm branches. But there was a political significance to palm branches. 200 years before Jesus, Simon Maccabeus had driven the occupying forces out of Jerusalem. He was a leader of an insurrection that actually had some measure of success. Uh, He was honored with the waving of palm branches. So soon the, the palm branch would become a symbol of the Jewish insurgents. Simon Maccabeus was eventually defeated, but now Jesus is coming. So the people are laying down palm branches. They're waving palm branches. The palm branches were a clue as to what they were expecting. The adults, anyway. There were kids there waving palm branches as well, I'm sure. And they weren't thinking about Perhaps this is the leader of the next insurrection. I love the fact that we had children waving palm branches this morning. Because like those children lining the road in Jerusalem, they just knew this was somebody important. This was somebody to be honored. This is the same Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. This was the same Jesus who Matthew tells us in Matthew 11, Jesus prayed, thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. So we know from what they did 
They had an idea of who this must be. They had an expectation concerning who Jesus must be, and we know that from the palm branches. But we also know from what they said. Take a look at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna, that word literally means save us. Son of David means king. And they had that expectation from 2 Samuel 7. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is from Psalm 118, which is a kingship psalm. In John's gospel, the crowd also cries out, even the king of Israel, which isn't in Psalm 118, but it completes the idea and helps us to better understand the fullness of their expectations. So what are they saying? Blessed be the true king. Sent to us by God, deliver us. So what were they expecting? They were expecting a Messiah who would ride a war horse into Jerusalem. They were expecting a king to lead them to victory and to restore the kingdom to Israel. What do you expect the son of David to do for you? Well, it depends on which story you're living in. Are you living in his story, or are you mainly living in your story? Is the cry of your heart, Lord Jesus, come and conquer sin and evil. Lord Jesus, come back, return, restore the kingdom in the fullest sense of the word, the kingdom of God over the new creation that's renewed. Or is your cry, Hosanna, something on the, along the lines of, Jesus, I expect you to give me what I'm telling you I need. Save me. What I need for you to do is give me a better job. What I need for you to do is is get me into the right school. What I need for you to do is find me a spouse. So, So here I am, Jesus. I'm laying down the palm branches in my heart. King Jesus, come and save me. But is that the Savior that you need? So let's turn second to the Savior we need. He came to save, but not in a way that that crowd expected. They were crying, Hosanna, which means save us. But what kind of Savior would they receive? Notice how Jesus came. Look back in verse well, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a war horse tied. A donkey, a donkey tied in a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. In, in, in this time, in the first century, and, and prior to that as well, a donkey, a king riding on a donkey was a sign of, of peace. It wasn't a way of signifying I'm coming to conquer. It was a way of signifying I'm coming in peace. <laughs> Jesus is, is sending a message in what he's doing by riding the donkey into Jerusalem. He's doing so in fulfillment of prophecy. Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5 is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, 
On a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. If you go back and look at Zechariah 9, and especially verses 9 through 11, you will see what Zechariah is prophesying concerning this king. He'll make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He will bring salvation to his people. He's a humble king who comes in peace. You can go on and read in in verses uh, 10 and 11 in Zechariah 9 how this king is coming to remember or renew the blood of the covenant. (laughs) Blood is specifically mentioned there in Zechariah chapter 9, pointing, of course, to the cross. So that's how the true story was unfolding. And the sad irony was how they were missing it. They were missing it. From Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord within a matter of days would be crucify him. They needed the kind of victory he came to achieve. They needed victory over sin and death. They needed liberation, not from the Roman rulers, but from the power of hell. They needed peace with God, which was the very peace that Jesus was coming with. They needed his suffering, his shed blood in their place. They needed his blood to be on them, which is exactly what they said they wanted, but for all the wrong reasons, later in Matthew chapter 27, 24, and 25. Listen to this with me. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And that's exactly what needed to happen. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 to 21. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They missed it. They missed it entirely. Verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They missed it. Are you still stuck in your rival story? Are you missing who Jesus really is? Are are you laying palm branches down before Jesus, hoping he'll do for you what you want him to do? What do you really need from this Savior? You need him to be on the donkey, not the war horse in your life. You need him on the cross, not on Herod's throne. You need him to accomplish his agenda, not yours. You need his story to unfold as planned. Why? Well, just think for a minute about the outcome of your rival story when that's been elevated to the place of supreme importance in your life. Much of what you're living for won't come true. It won't. There's no guarantee that any of it will come true. What then? And if it does come true, will you be satisfied? Countless people have testified to the fact that they're not precisely because your story was meant to find its completion in something bigger than you. And that's in Jesus' story.
So how do you handle the, the, the disappointments that come when your rival story comes undone? The only way to endure the trials of life, the disappointments, often devastating disappointments, is to look to the Savior who will complete your story when he returns. So let's look finally to the Savior who will return. Notice how Jesus is in complete control of everything. He knows what is going to happen. Verses 1 through 3 again. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent the two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. I mean, he's com- he knew. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, he had said expressly, This is what I'm going to Jerusalem to do. I'm going there to die. I'll be crucified. I'll be raised on the third day. You see it in Mark's gospel. You see it in Luke's gospel. Jesus is absolutely in control of this situation. He would promise to go and prepare a place for his disciples. That's in John's gospel. On the cross, he would cry out, tetelestai, which means, of course, it is finished, but also has this nuance, this idea of mission accomplished. I did what I came to do. It's finished. And his rising from the dead, of course, confirms his victory, as does his promise to return. What does that mean for your life? What does that mean for your story? Well, most of us fall into one of two camps. We either believe our rival story will ultimately satisfy us, or we've discovered upon its completion that it did not. And it won't. It can't. All our rival stories are self-centered, and in the end, they are remarkably shallow. They fall so far short of what Jesus has for us, of what God is offering us. And so God sent his son to suffer and to die, and Jesus willingly did so. He endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him, so that you can be part of the story of his glory, the true story that goes on forever. The true story, as C.S. Lewis said in the last battle, at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia series, in which every page, every chapter is better than the one before. John Calvin once said that the world is a theater for God's glory. Your ordinary life, your ordinary everyday routine of life, is a theater for God's glory. Your ordinary, everyday life is made extraordinary, not by pursuing your own glory, but by living for his. Another John from a long time ago, John Owen, said that the light of faith given to us, the very very fact that we have faith at all to believe, is given to us chiefly to enable us to behold the glory of God in Christ. The heavens declare the glory of God. All creation is a theater for God's glory. There's something glorious just in being around other human beings that are made in his image, and yet we're saved so that we can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 
That's what we're created to do. That's where we'll find our greatest joy. That's what brings our stories now meaning and will bring them to ultimate completion in the sense that there will be a joy Ah, as another Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards said, is like having a little thimble at the ocean being filled continuously and then ever expansively with the very love of God in Christ forever. That's, that's the story of the gospel. That's the story that's offered to each and every one of us. Look to Jesus. Behold his glory. Even the glory of his cross. And find your story achieving its ultimate fulfillment, both now and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do pray that you will help us to abandon the ways in which we make the often very good things in our lives ultimate things. Lord, help us enter into the story of our lives, the story that involves great joy and great pain and suffering full-heartedness and broken-heartedness. Lord, help us to enter into those stories, recognizing that they are part of your story and find their fulfillment, their meaning, their purpose in you. Lord, help us to be those who recognize you, Lord Jesus, for who you really are, the Savior that we need. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.